Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Dodds. This is Greg Oddy. This is Tyson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Kicker. This is Eugene Brickett. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter, and tonight is a very special episode because we have hit double digits, the big 1-0, episode 10, it is, well, I'm pretty pretty emotional right now, I can feel tears in my eyes, and yeah, I don't know if I'm going to have the strength to get through this episode, but... <laughs> Yeah, that was awkward. Yeah, but no, thank you to everyone who has tuned in for my 10th anniversary, everyone who has taken the time to give me some positive feedback and, and rate me on Apple Podcasts and even just come up to me in person, hey man, I, I listened to your podcast, that it was a really good episode with this person, that person. It does mean a lot to me. Hopefully you will continue to, to stick around and listen to the interviews I have and helps boost the, the audience base of Amato's fifth quarter, which therefore will allow me to be able to get more guests on. That's It's all a domino effect. So thank you to everyone who has tuned in. And But look, we're going to get into this episode to celebrate my 10th anniversary, the big 1-0, double digits. Today, my special guest is cult hero, cult figure from the AFL Jack Fitzpatrick, who of course played for the Melbourne Football Club and also played a couple of seasons at Hawthorne as well. Now, when you look at 
what he achieved in his career. You'll see 26 games for 27 goals. And typically speaking, of course, with all the respect in the world, you would, if you didn't know who Jack Fitzpatrick was, you would assume, okay, he was a player that not, not at the required level of AFL standard. You know, that's what you would have that preconceived idea. But make no mistake about it. Jack Fitzpatrick was a very, very good player, a very good ruckman and a very good forward, particularly in his years at Melbourne. He was creative, he made things happen, and he kicked goals regularly, but just had a a bit of bad luck along the way, had some injury issues, you know, some form issues at times as well, and and players in his position, you know, that were playing really well in his position and, and these sorts of things, but... He is such a journeyman, and he, and he's such a gentleman as well. He had to deal growing up fatigue syndrome as a young kid, and also as a 21-year-old was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So for him to overcome these challenges and to make the AFL and to, to play well in the AFL in those 26 games, he didn't have a lot of really bad games. You know, those 26 games he played, he had some highlights, man. You know, there, there were some times in his career where he was kicking bags of 3 4 on a somewhat regular basis. And it was a shame that his career didn't didn't last as long as what it could have. Because really, he could still be playing now. He's only, what, 28, 29 years old. He could very well still be playing now. So it's a shame that those injuries and those sort of issues really plagued his career because you never know what could have been. But as I said, he's got a great story and he goes into detail. He was more than happy to give his time and talk about, you know, some of these setbacks with his chronic fatigue syndrome and his diabetes and and some of the issues he may have had with certain coaches along the way and and why things may not have worked out at Melbourne and then why they didn't work out at Hawthorne and the journey. He talks about that brief period in 2013 where he was in career best form and kicking bags of two, three, four every week. What was his best form, but also in the disastrous period of 2012-13 at the Melbourne Football Club with Mark Neild and, and the issues that were surrounding the football club at that time. He talks about going to Hawthorne and kicking that miraculous goal from, what was it, 60 metres out to get Hawthorne into the top four. That's what, you know, was a classic moment, the biggest moment of his career. He talks about the two finals he played for Hawthorne in 2016 and and sort of the, the sad ending that came in 2017 for him with that injury. So let's get into it. It's episode 10 here of A5Q. We're going to celebrate by bringing him on. Let's get the man on from the Melbourne Football Club and the Hawthorne Football Club. It's Jack Fitzpatrick about to come onto the ground. And he's worked it across the body. Absolute perfection from Fitzpatrick. Right of the Fitzpatrick. He's caught on his left, so he goes with the check side. Who needs a left when you can do that? That's a beautiful goal. Fitzpatrick breaks. They can goal square. Long kick. How will it bounce? It's through for a goal. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today I've got a very special guest on. It's Jack Fitzpatrick from the Melbourne and Hawthorne Football Clubs. Fitzy, thank you so much for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure, mate. It's uh, great to be on. It's very good to have you on. I've been really looking forward to this episode for some time now, but football is over. It's all of a sudden been nearly four years now since you since you hung up the boots. How have you settled into post-football life, and what, are you, what have you been up to? It's uh, scary to think it's been that long, mate. I um, 
starting, you know, still trying to show my highlights to anyone who will watch, and uh, they just keep getting older and older. But, um, yeah, no, been quite busy in the post-footy life, mate. Uh, Football-wise, I've, I've kept busy. Um, I initially went and, and was assistant coaching at the Werribee Football Club in the VFL. Um, and, and spent two seasons there. So that was really, really enjoyable. And I moved from Werribee um, to, to go and coach um, at the Western Bulldogs AFLW. Um, and I'm coming into my second season as assistant coach with the Doggies. So completely different, mate. Obviously have spent my entire football life, or almost entire life, playing football from the age of five onwards. And you started kick, And, you know, it's obviously always been around the guys. And, you know, you, you have, um, you know, females helping out, whether it be trainers or physios or whatever it might be, mums, etc. But, yeah, to be involved in, in the women's program, it's, it's very different to, to what anything I've been involved in, but I'm loving it. Um, the girls are great. Uh, very, very different coaching women to men and, and anyone who wants to say that it's not um, they're kidding themselves you know women and men are very different but it's a different challenge I'm absolutely loving it the new season's only just around the quarter, uh, corner so a couple of weeks until the AFLW season starts mate and that's where I'm at at the moment football wise non-football wise I've uh, kept busy as well I'm still an ambassador at Diabetes Victoria um, being a type 1 diabetic myself so um, that's the connection there. And, and my real job, for want of a better word, um, I work as a journalist and digital content um, creator for a company called News Perform. So that's in, in racing. I love horse racing and, uh, yeah, really enjoy my work there. So that's sort of what keeps my time, mate, now that uh, I've officially finished my uni degree, which I did a Bachelor of Business majoring in Management, Innovation and Marketing. Beautiful. So you've been busy. Congratulations on every, everything you've done. And, and just on the women's football, how's it being a coach with, with Nathan Burke, who's obviously a champion of St Kilda? Yeah, mate, it's, uh, it's, I've been pretty lucky, really. I mean, I had five coaches in six seasons when I was playing at Melbourne, and then I go and play under Clarko for two seasons, which was, you know, obviously incredible. Um, and then I step out and work at Werribee and, and 12 months there under John Lamont, who was a great coach, great developing coach. Um, I love Johnny, and he really helped me early in my sort of coaching journey. Um, and then at Werribee, Mark Choco Williams takes over, and you know we all know Choco; he's a very well-known figure, and it's great to see him back in the AFL system. I think Melbourne getting him there to to head the development's been great. So I was fortunate to work under Choco for twelve months, and since then I've gone to the Bulldogs where I'm working with Nathan Burke, and again he's another one who we know everything about Burke. He is one of the kindest people I've ever met. Um, so genuine, such a good bloke. Um, but obviously, you know, his footballing resume, his CV, what he achieved in, in footy, um, there's not many around with a CV like his, you know. Um, yeah, so very, very fortunate to be learning off uh, someone like him. And you did mention Werribee, and that's obviously where you grew up there in, in Victoria. Was football always something you wanted to do? And what was it like coming through the ranks there at Werribee to eventually make the AFL system? Yeah, footy was always um, always something I loved, mate. I played it from from a young age, and um, footy was my summer sport. Uh, sorry, winter sport. I loved little athletics. I was actually a pretty decent um, junior hurdler back in the day. Um, so, sort of athletics was my summer sport. Footy was my winter sport. And Mum actually remembers when the Sydney Olympics were on. I, I went up to her all stressed out one day, and Mum, Mum, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And she said, Jack, what's wrong? I said, I don't know what's going to happen when the Olympics and footy finals are on at the same time. Am I going to play footy or am I going to go to the Olympics? How can I do both? <laughs> so I would have been nine years old when the Sydney Olympics were on. So, yeah, back at that young age, that was sort of, you know, footy was always my passion. And I did grow up in Werribee, went to school in Werribee. But junior football-wise, I played for a club called Wyndham Vale, which 
is the next suburb on, um, and in the football aspect, um, was probably Werribee's poorer younger cousin. Um, we, you know, Werribee would fill out. Each junior team would have three or four teams filled with kids, and Winnevale would always struggle to sort of fill one. So, um, yeah, I played for, I guess, the underdogs, for want of a better word, um, and loved it out there. Grew up at Winnevale and spent my entire junior career there until, you know, things started to get more serious and was playing Vic Metro and Western Jets and these kinds of things. So, yeah, growing up in Werribee was great. Went to school um, out here, um, loved it. Still very, very close with my school friends. I've been groomsmen in weddings and, and these kinds of things for a couple. Um, so it was a great upbringing, really enjoyed it. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, I was probably fortunate to have a pretty good junior footy career. So, you know, always in the interleague teams, a um, couple of comp BNFs, um, those kinds of things. And, and, yeah, as I said, Big Metro under 16s, AIS, two years of Big Metro under 18s, and, and they got drafted. So, um, yeah, people could take, could argue that I peaked early before I actually got to the AFL system, mate. I love that analogy you used. What would you say, the poorer cousin? Yeah, we were the we were the sort of the um, Cinderella, for want of a better word. The stepsisters got all the attention, and we were the ones that uh, yeah, no one really wanted to be at at Windervale. But um, no, it was good. Like I've again, some really good family friends from playing footy at Windervale. Um, you know, people I still spend a Melbourne Cup day with or Grand Final day. Um, again, I've been a groomsman at a wedding for a guy I grew up playing footy with at Windervale. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It was the the poorer cousin or the the younger brother or whatever you want to say, but. Um, a lot of great people out there, and um, yeah, it was a great footy club. Oh, that's awesome. Absolutely awesome. And obviously, just before this interview, I've done a, a little bit of research, and you've had a few, not really setbacks, but a few issues along the way, and, and one of those is dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome. Can you just give the listeners, you know, if you're comfortable to talk about it, a little bit of an insight into what that is and, and how it can sort of affect a professional athlete? Absolutely, mate. More, always more than happy to, to talk about it and share my story. It actually started back, believe it or not, mate, when um, when I was great prep at school. So I was five years old and um, I got glandular fever, uh, which is quite young to get glandular fever. But from there, basically developed chronic fatigue syndrome. And the best way I can describe it is that it was almost every time there was a change in season, so, you know, winter to spring or, or whatever it might be, was almost a relapse of the um, glandular fever, um, and from that developed chronic fatigue syndrome. So a couple of times a year, three or four times a year, um, it was almost a relapse of that glandular fever, mate. Um, I'd get really, really fatigued and really, really sick. And, you know, from the early ages of of primary school, uh, chronic fatigue is is literally as it sounds. And it was at the point where mum and dad would have to literally pick me up from the couch or from bed and carry me to the toilet because I just physically didn't have the energy to be able to do it. So that wow. was pretty much, yeah, that was pretty much sort of how it worked. And, you know, people ask, well, how did you play footy or how did you do sport? But um, I basically never trained as a, as a youngster. Um, I, ju- I just, yeah, went out and played on game day or, or whether it was, you know, footy or, or athletics, I just went out and raced on race day. Um and yeah, that was it. I mean, kids are never great at conserving their energy. So I was never good at that. But I certainly think it helped as I was coming through the teenage years, um, particularly, you know, early high school. And couple, initially I was, you know, missing a lot of time at school just because I was so sick, missing one or two weeks at a time. And you just get better at managing yourself and recognizing your body and knowing what you need. So 
I started to get better and, and understand my body. And if I was starting to feel sick, I would just pull back from a little bit rather than really push myself over the edge. But again, you know, I was barely training and, and just fortunate enough, I guess, to have a bit of natural ability, both with football and athletics. When I'm at the AIS um, football at the end of year 10, that's probably when, I guess, it changed my life or certainly changed my footy journey. The doctor there, Hamish Osborne, and the fitness man, Jimmy Veal, and obviously the coach, Alan McConnell, who's, who's now still GWS and, and heading up the women's program there. I owe them so much and, and really am so thankful for the help that they had um, for me. And basically the analogy that the doctor used for me was that we'll never be able to cure um, your chronic fatigue, but what we can do, if you imagine in the simplest analogy possible, um, every week you've got an energy amount. And think of a video game, you've sort of got a power bar and an X amount of energy. Obviously, the more energy you use each week, that gets depleted. And if you deplete more energy than what you've got, that will um, result in a crash, is what we call it. I'd have those one or two weeks in bed where I couldn't do anything. And so whilst we can never properly cure chronic fatigue, what we can do is work understanding the power bar or energy bar. So you've got more and more energy to a point where you can use that almost limited amount. So we went back and started things remedially um, and, and literally going into the KAC Cup my first year of under-18s, my pre-season was walking for 20 minutes a day and that was it. Um, after a month or two, I would go from walking 20 minutes a day to I would join in the warm-up with the team at training, so that was three times a week and then do my 20-minute walk. And then it became a 25-minute walk, and then 30 minutes. Then I'd do one drill, two drill. The reason we went back and solidified things so much was because even though I was doing more previously, I continually was wiping myself out and never really getting anywhere. It was sort of like two steps forward, two steps back kind of a thing. So the plan was to continually increase my fitness base and never, ever have to get to one of those crashes again. So that was pretty much my life, and it changed it. And, it got, you know, I was fortunate enough that um, I had so much support from both the Western Jets and the AFL AIS Academy that, um, yeah, long story short, I, I guess, for want of a better word, um, got on top of it a bit. But, you know, I, I remember growing up watching footy, and Alistair Lynch had chronic fatigue syndrome, and he was such a hero for mine because I just remember looking up at him and, as we know, he was a superstar for, for Brisbane. But I just kept looking and thinking, geez, he's got what I've got. He can play AFL footy and he can do what I want to do. So if he can do it, it's possible. And the inspiration that he um, gave to me, was, you know, I, I can't quantify it. And I was fortunate enough that when I was in the AAS, one of the assistant coaches was actually Michael Voss. And Vossi was, you know, kind enough to give Lynchy uh, or give, yeah, Lynchy my contact details. And I got into contact with him when I was about 16, 17, and, and that was so amazing. So, you know, I had so much help along the way and so many people I need to thank and, and am thankful for. What a story. So was was the chronic fatigue syndrome, was that a, a massive issue in your AFL career? Did that impact your ability to play in the professional game? Um, it did sort of. Look, there were different theories of chronic fatigue um you know some look, there were certainly issues where, where some people and doctors didn't believe it existed at all um which you know it's almost it's a similar along the lines of mental health these days where some people always you know question the, the validity of it um which i still find amazing but um some people would say it sort of last 10 years and, and gets on top of that and maybe that was right you know i got that about eight five or six and 
I was probably not over it, but by 16, 17, I, I'd sort of seen the back of it. But I had my last crash, if that's what you want to call it, uh, in the pre-season of my third year of footy, um, where I was quite crook and, and missed a couple of weeks of training. But again, I think it just goes about building up a fitness base, B, becoming better at reading my body and, and more mature, and C, Again, being a professional athlete, um, you know, I would try and do simple things like have a really good sleep in once a week and really make sure I was replenishing myself. So I'm um, just looking after myself in that way. And I think um, all of it sort of came together that, yeah, pretty much for the rest of my career after that final crash, for want of a better word, it, it never really became too much of an issue. I still look out for it this day. Don't get me wrong. If, if I do get a bit of a cold or a flu or whatever it was, I found that I can sometimes be hit harder by the, those types of things. Um, but, yeah, I do try and make sure that I'm giving myself a decent sleep in every now and then and, and just making sure I'm listening to my body. Absolutely. Yeah, it speaks volumes of your perseverance to actually, you know, get through that and, and make the elite level. Perseverance, mate. Others, others say stubbornness, which... Oh, a bit of, you know what? You need a bit of stubbornness. I, I do believe that. You need a bit of stubbornness. No, I agree with you there. And what about being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 21, as you briefly mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's, it's funny how you, you know, sort of talking about chronic fatigue, and I got my last crash, um, for, again, using that word, at the start of the pre-season for my third year of AFL, and it was in my third year of AFL where I was diagnosed with diabetes, and it was, it was two weeks before I turned 21, and, and to be honest with you, mate, um, I had all the previous misconceptions about diabetes that you see in the media. I thought it was something that you get when you're a little bit older. You might be overweight. You don't eat well. You might have had too much sugar. I didn't know a lot about it. Um, so it was a surprise to me. I didn't realize people, you know, particularly young 20, 21-year-old AFL players who are fit and healthy and eat well could get diabetes. I just didn't understand it. So it was a complete shock and a, and a new learning curve. But, you know, it's something I still... Um, you know, and obviously dealing with this to this day, and I'm more than happy to share my story about it. But um, for mine, I consider myself fortunate that if I was to get diabetes, I got it when I was playing footy because the, the great way to manage diabetes is eat well, have a good routine, stay fit, keep active, which is exactly what you do as an AFL player. So other than having to start testing my sugars and, you know, giving myself injections when I, when I eat before I go to bed, um, I didn't have to change a lot of my lifestyle, whereas I look at a lot of particularly kids who have diabetes and, you know, think about life as a teenager, whether it be going to birthday parties or sleepovers or school camps or anything like that. Trying to do all that, inverted commas, normal stuff, for want of a better phrase, with diabetes would be really tough. So I have so much admiration for the kids and teenagers and adults that I speak to who have got diabetes. Um, and I guess all the work I do with Diabetes Victoria, the reason I'm so passionate about it, um, it goes back to, I guess, what I was talking about with, with my passion for, or for my inspiration from Alistair Lynch of playing AFL. Um, if I could see that he had what I had and he could still play AFL, I guess I try and showcase that I was still able to play AFL and you know, I wasn't Buddy Franklin or Gary Ablett. I was far from an absolute superstar, but I was still able to play and train like everyone, again, inverted commas, normal. So if I can do it, you can too. And I just guess that's the message I'm trying to showcase to everyone. Very, very inspirational. Thank you, mate. So we will get on to your, your football career. You were drafted by Melbourne, pick 50 in the 2009 draft. Coming into the AFL system, you'd come, you, or sorry, you came to a club that had just won two wooden spoons coached by the late Dean Bailey, that first season you didn't play a game. 
But how did you find adjusting to life as a full-time athlete and coming into the club at that time that had you know, not had much on-field success? Was it tough? Probably. It was actually one of the better times of my Melbourne career, as stupid as that sounds. I mean, you look at the period I was at Melbourne from the end of 2009 to 2015, and you know those years at the end part of the decade were, were pretty ordinary years and pretty tough years. And when I got to the club, though, whilst it was tough, I mean, you look at the early draft picks we had. We had two number one draft picks in a row. I mean, we had Watts, Scully, Scully Trengo over my draft. We had Watts, we had Grimes, we had Marrick. We had all these young players that were taken early in the draft. And there was a lot of optimism and I think a lot of talent at the footy club. So whilst the club hadn't been a great place, there actually was the promising signs. And I think a lot of that older guard started to move on. So we still had Cam Bruce, Brad Green, etc. But... Your David Neitz of the world, your Adam Muse, these guys who, funnily enough, ended up coaching me when I was at Hawthorne a little bit later. Those guys had moved on. So sort of the old guard had moved and, and we had the new guard and the optimism. So it actually was a pretty interesting time because there were so many young guys, early draft picks, a lot of talent that, yeah, look, it was tough to come into a team that um, I guess had previously struggled, but... It actually was more optimistic than you imagine. So, um, you know, even my draft, we had four, four picks in the top 20 and the two outside of it were myself and Gorney. So, um, yeah, the optimism was really good. The vibe around the club was, was okay. Obviously, we had Jim Dines at the time who was quite well and, and going through his issues. But, yeah, it wasn't as tough as actually what it became later in my career. We'd go through different coaches and different different hard spells. Um, Probably the one thing, if I look back at the time, and I think this has probably been widely accepted, is that maybe some of those older guys had been moved on too soon. Um, I think the number one thing you want as a young player coming in is an older player to learn off. Now, sometimes these older players, um, I've got to be careful with, I don't don't mean to be disrespectful, they might not be as talented as your first round draft pick, your Jack Watts of the world for argument's sake. But they know AFL football. They know how hard you have to work. And the other thing is they are men. So these are 26, 27, 28-year-olds who are wrestling, competing with physically against the young kids coming through. And I think the prime example of an example of, of what I'm talking about at the moment is Tim English from the Western Bulldogs. I don't think anyone can debate the talent that Tim's got. But almost from day one of when he's walked in, he really had a senior that day in, day out, the footy club he's competing with so at times we see in games that Tim English he can do everything he can mark he can run he can get around the ground he can do all this amazing stuff but the knock on him is the consistency of his ruck work it's not an effort thing I'm a massive believer in any coach or pundit who says that effort is a problem they just say that because they actually can't understand what's going on so they'll go straight to effort it's a cop-out for both a coach and a pundit. But it's just the consistency of effort. Tim English isn't spending three-hour training sessions in the middle of summer wrestling against the 28-year-old ruck who's been there and weighs 10 kilos more, etc. So I think now that he's got Steph Martin there, it's the best thing for Tim English's development because he's just getting used to day in, day out competing against someone as opposed to just doing it on weekends. So, Maybe if I was to, you know, if, if they had their time again, James McDonald, for example, he was the captain in my first year. And, um, I, you know, many people would now acknowledge that he was probably moved on too soon. These are the type of players 
James McDonald, Frank Miller, etc. I think they actually serve a much more better purpose than just what they do on match day. Yeah, no, that makes it definitely makes sense, and I, and I do agree with what you're saying, hundred percent. Because you need the older players to guide the younger players. You can't just get rid of all the senior experience all in one go. It, that's the thing, mate. I mean, the reality is, look, I'll defend Jack Watts to the cow, cows come home in terms of him, him being the correct pick at number one in that draft. There is no doubt whatsoever. I played in Big Metro that year. I knew all the players in Victoria. I played with them. I played against most of them. And then playing at the National Carnival, I played against all the other kids. Watts is by far and away the correct draft pick for number one in that draft. And anyone who doesn't think so, and I'm talking about at the time, I'm not talking about the career they've had since. Anyone who doesn't acknowledge that is just wrong. The thing with poor old Watts is the development of the football club just wasn't there. He comes in and he's got an abundance of potential. But again, he's not competing with your established full forward and centre-half forward to have to earn his spot. And honestly, that is, it's a massive thing. And it's also why I'm a big believer that, you know, I don't think Melbourne did get it right at the time in terms of development. And I'm such a big believer that in the draft isn't fair because you have no say where you go, which is fair enough. We all sign up to that. However, I don't think it's fair that depending where you go, you've got a better chance of having a successful career versus a non-successful career. That's not right and it's not fair on a kid. If you're a young kid coming through today, there are teams that you can go to and go, yeah, I'm going to be given every chance that they're coaching, their development, etc. And there are other clubs you go to and it's going to be a flip of the coin. And that's just not right. Yeah, and, and I would probably, I mean, I've, I don't know Jack Watts, I've never spoken to him, but it seems like when he was taken at number one pick, everyone subconsciously just assumed he was going to be all Australian, win Brownlows, win premierships. And for an 18-year-old to be able to deal with that, I couldn't imagine it. No, I mean, there's obviously the, the extra and expectation there and, and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, that's, that's one side of it. But the other one is you have to be developed because no matter how good you are as an 18-year-old, you're an 18-year-old and you're coming up against people who have been professional footballers for, you know, you look at the fullbacks who's coming up to play against. They're 27 to 30 years old. They're 10 years older. So for 10 years more than he started, they've been doing weights every day, they've been running every day, they've been playing AFL, they are professional athletes. They've got 10 years of experience of doing it. So you could be the best at almost anything in the world, but if you're going against people who've got 10 years experience on you, they're going to come out on top. It's just inevitable. So if you're not getting that development to take you there, then you haven't really got much of a hope. Yeah. No, it's definitely a fair call, 100%. But, I mean, and as you mentioned, there were some difficult times. And I, I know you didn't play in this game, but what about that that terrible loss to Geelong in 2011 at Cardinia Park, 186-point loss, and Dean Bailey gets sacked pretty much days after? Do you remember what it was like around the club at that time and, and Bailey's subsequent sacking? The crowd goes up as one. I have seen history... In a couple of forms, this is Geelong's highest ever score at Skilled Stadium. It has been a feast like we have never seen before here. And it could be the last supper for Melbourne. 37 goals, 11, 233. That's 7 goals, 5, 47. 
Geelong's highest ever score at Skilled and their biggest ever win over Melbourne, 186 points. Yeah, I, I do. It was a weird day. Um, I mean, my personal experience was almost funny if you look back on it. Um, as you said, I, I didn't play my first year and my, I made my debut in the last game of my second season. But when I got drafted, I had a flawless pre-season and, and very quickly went through pre-season, played the first NAB Cup game, played the next NAB game. And then from there, I got osteitis pubis. If you remember that, that was the buzzword at one point. Came back from that, from osteitis pubis, um, my second or third game from that, dislocated my shoulder. So I missed about five or six weeks from that and eventually come back. And by the time um, I came back, I was playing VFL 2s back then because you had a VFL reserves um, and got in the seniors. I think there were only five or six rounds left of the year. So I played the last five or six rounds left and the year was done. I have shoulder surgery. So then I have shoulder surgery at the end of the year from the dislocated shoulder that I suffered. Um, then get through the whole pre-season. Just literally the training session before the first intra club, I was going okay. Foot gets a bit sore. Long story short, stress fracture in my foot. So I have a stress fracture in my foot. Have to go through all the rehab for that. That's, you know, a number of weeks out. Come back through that, playing the VFL reserves again, limited game time. Played, I think, two or three games in the VFL reserves. Play my first VFL seniors game for the year. Hurt my syndesmosis ankle in, in a hospital having surgery two days later. So again, I do that, have the surgery, come back. By the time I'm back playing, I think it was like 15 or something, like really late in the season, whatever it was. So it was almost two years went by without actually, you know, having experienced AFL. It was bizarre. So that day, the 186-point loss, I think it was my second game back from my syndesmosis ankle injury. So I played in the VFL reserves that day. Um, and finally, we won by about 150 points. So I walked off the ground going, how good is this? I played quite well. You know, it's hard not to when you've um, played a 150-point win. So I walked off the ground, how good's that? And I hear that the VFL senior team, and I think this gets lost in the whole 186 points, the VFL senior team were playing at the same time as us because they played Geelong as a curtain raiser before the AFL game. They right. lost by about 130 points that day. So the VFL team lost by about 130 or whatever it was. And then the AFL team um, obviously came out and that happened. So I left my VFL game, uh, or the VFL reserves game, going, beauty, I played well. Um, the VFL team got beat, so I'm assuming I'll probably be in the seniors next week, which is great. And I went to do recovery by myself, and I was listening to the radio and I think Geelong kicked, you know, the first two goals in the first two minutes or something. And I thought, geez, this isn't a good start. So I went into the footy club, did my recovery, came out from the recovery, ice bath, spa, etc. Got back in the car to drive home just before half time, And they read the score out and I nearly crashed my car. I couldn't believe it. It was, you know, I can't remember what it was. It was about 120 to nothing or something. And I was like, wow, that's too bad to be true. And I got home for the second half of the game and I was, and I was genuinely in disbelief. Um, so the old day on itself was weird because I was in a pretty good mindset because I played all right. But obviously the seniors and the VFL boys had an absolute nightmare. So, yeah, obviously we know what happened next. Unfortunately, Dean Bailey, um, who I think was a terrific coach, terrific person. I love Bales. I, I think he was a ripping human being, but... I think better than that, Bales, 
was not better than that. So he was a ripping human being, but on top of that, he actually was a really good coach. A lot of the stuff he was talking about, I think he was ahead of his time and, and really could coach. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. But I actually think that that team in 2011, if you take out the 180-point loss, which obviously is a shocking day, don't get me wrong, but I think two days or two weeks earlier than that or a month earlier or whatever it was, I can't remember now, we played Richmond and beat them pretty easily. And Richmond and us at the time were sort of seen to be in the same phase of development. You know, Dustin Martin was my draft. Trent Cotchin was the same draft as Jack Rhymes and Cale Morton. Jack Rebolt was the same draft as James Frawley. So all of these players are coming through at the same time. And at that time, we belted Richmond. Like, it was probably five or six goals, and it was an easy-ish win. And I still think that that was actually the best Melbourne team I played with, even though I only played one game at the end of the year. Don't get me wrong, the footy club itself wasn't in a great spot, and there were undoubtedly things that we as a team in the footy department could have done better. But I think in 2011, I spoke about that excitement and all the young, talented draft picks and players were there when I got drafted. All those players were coming through, and I think, personally, that was the best Melbourne team that I played in. Um, it was just unfortunate that, that, unfortunately, poor old Bales, I guess he was probably made a scapegoat for what was going on at the footy club at the time. Right, quarter time break here on A5Q, and I've got a question. Did you happen to listen to last week's episode with two-time NBL champion and 1998 Larry Sengstock medalist Kevin Brooks? If you haven't, I suggest you go back because KB is the first ever guest I've had on the show who is a former NBA player, played over 120 games for the Denver Nuggets, and then came here to Australia, tore it up in the NBL for the 36ers, the Kings, and the Hunter Pirates. Here's a little snippet of it. I had a contract from the Los Angeles Clippers that was offered to me, and I was given a week to sign it. Now, the Clippers weren't a very good team back then, but... I think it was a bit of ego involved that I still have that contract back home in America right now. I did not sign that contract, Dan. That would have put me right back in the NBA for my fourth year. And I had uh, quite a bit of interest. I played in some summer league uh, competitions. I think I played with the Cleveland Cavaliers, with Coach Mike Fratello. And I had a workout for the Los Angeles Clippers. That was probably... That could have been, I can't remember, I think that might have been after the contract was offered. And I did sign it, so the deadline was up on that. I had some interest from the Orlando Magic. They had invited me to go to their training camp. Uh, but I didn't go to that. So for me at that time, the Clippers were such a bad team, I didn't want to go there. I thought there was just such disarray. And I felt that I had some interest from some other teams through my agent. So I thought I'd go that way, but it didn't work out for me. KB goes into all details of his career from the NBA, the NBL, and even talks about some of the darker times in in his career, his assistant coaching days at the 36ers and sort of the acrimonious end with both Joey Wright and Mitch Creek. So definitely go back and listen to it. But for now, let's get back to Jack Fitzpatrick. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because probably, as you said, Two weeks to a month before that game, you were still in contention for finals. It wasn't yep. like it was a disastrous year where you only won two games and finished bottom. You were competitive yep. for most of it. It just 
that one, when people think of Melbourne 2011, they instantly think of the Geelong game. They do. And I mean, look, it's, it's a remarkable game and, and there are no excuses for it. it. It's a diabolical performance. That's the only way you can describe it. But, yeah, earlier that month, when we played Richmond, and as I said, we were seen to be in a similar stage of development. Now, you see Richmond are now, sometimes it can take that long. Like, Dustin, Revolt and Frank Botchel were all at the club at the time. Alex Rance was at the club and he started his career playing in the VFL reserves. Like, it does take time sometimes. Some clubs don't take as long as others, but it took them eight years and nearly sacked the coach before they actually become three flags in four years. So we beat Richmond pretty easily. And I think the week before we played Geelong, we played Hawthorne at the MCG. And while they beat us, again, I'm guessing here, I'd say four to five goals, um, they didn't smash us off the park. You've got to remember, that's a Hawthorne flag that won the 08 Premiership. Um, and, you know, 29 and 10, they weren't as great. And then 2011, they went on to play in a prelim. So, look, I could have my timelines mixed up a little bit there, but we weren't that bad a team at that point in time. And you're right, there was a period in that year where we might have snuck into the finals. Yeah, it's, it's because that game sort of curtails the whole season, which is which is quite sad, really. But what yeah. about your first game at Adelaide Overport, Adelaide, under caretaker coach Todd Viney? You kicked a goal in a close loss. Do you remember Do you remember your first game and, and kicking that goal? Well, Taps got over the top. She was unbelievable. Not like she. It's the good, the bad, and it is sometimes the ugly. The goal to young Fitzpatrick. I remember the game very well. I remember the whole week. Um, it was great, you know, to, to finally get my AFL debut. Um, I mean, the reality of it was it was a Sunday afternoon in the last round of the year. Adelaide Oval before it was redeveloped. Um, I certainly don't know the absolute stats, but I'm certainly one of the first players to debut at Adelaide Oval. Might be the first. I don't know what the full record is, but I mean, if you think of how bad Port Adelaide were at the time and how you know Melbourne weren't going overly well on the Sunday afternoon time slot in the last round of the year, I don't think it was the most interesting game for the neutral uh, observer. But no, I remember the game well. I had the first shot on goal of the game and, and kicked a point. Um, my goal was a very, very uh, cheap handball over the top that I kicked <laughs> about three metres out. So Goal's a goal. It, it absolutely is, mate. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was just... For the moment for me, um, on my debut, it wasn't getting my first jumper or it wasn't flying over or any of that. For me, the moment was... You think of when you're at a game of footy, and I've been going to the footy for, you know, 10 years at that point, probably, yeah, probably longer... Um, with my dad and used to go and watch Hawthorne every weekend and you see the team run out they go through the banner and then they do the lap of the centre square and after the centre square they run inside 50 and the whole team has shots at goal and for me the moment of wow how cool is this was as we're running inside 50 all the players are having shots at goal I can hear the theme song going in the background and I just had this very small moment of wow, how cool is this? For 10 years, for 15 years, I've been at the footy watching this happen, seeing if they kick the goal, seeing if they kick the point, the theme song's on, the team's warming up, and now I'm doing it. And it was just that moment of, firstly, how cool is this? But secondly, every dream that you've ever had as a kid from the age of five onwards to play AFL, you were doing it. And it was just a real cool moment. Um, yeah, uh, it was a great day. Unfortunately, we did lose. It was a pretty close loss, but 
yeah, no, I loved every second of it. I was only about well, 14, 15 at the time, but I actually do remember watching the game. It was a great game, but yeah, disappointing for Melbourne they didn't get the win. The year after, so 2012, Mark Neal takes over. You, of course, had the very sad passing of, of Jim Steins, massive figure of the club, both on and off the field in its history. But it was sort of a, a changing of times for Melbourne with Jack Trengove and, and Grimes given the co-captaincy. Was there a genuine positive vibe going into that 2012 season? And did you guys as a whole believe it was finally going to be the time for some true success at the club and and possibly, uh, you know, finals appearance that year or at least get close to the finals? I think in hindsight, or history will say that the Neild years weren't good years. Um, I think it's pretty well documented. To go back to when Neildy took over, he was coaching at Collingwood when they won the flag in 2011, uh, in 2010. And then in 2011, he was their line coach until he left. I think it was the week of the prelim because he got the job at Melbourne. Um, so there was certainly some optimism that Neildy had had success. Um, it's There's always optimism when a new coach comes in and, and when there's a change in anything, initially it's quite good. Um, and you're right, the footy club itself, Mark Neal became the coach. Jim Steins had his passing. Myself, personally, I got diagnosed with diabetes, so it was a pretty pretty big year. Um, I think initially, you know, I, I can't ever remember too much about the NAB Challenge that year or the, or the pre-season games, but there was a bit of optimism. But we played Brisbane at the G in round one, and I think Brisbane weren't great at the time. I could be wrong, actually. I, I can't even remember. What was it, 2012? Yeah, they finished, I think that year they finished about 11th, 12th. Yeah, so they weren't strong, but they you know, weren't completely horrible. But I, I didn't play that game. I played in the VFL. But what I do remember is that I think at half time of that game, this is what I'm hearing secondhand. The scores were quite close. I think we were either even or a goal up or something like that. And at half time, the guys came in and apparently Mark Neal lost it, went off his tree and just sprayed them. And it's not like they were five goals down or ten goals down. And I think it was probably a foreshadowing moment for what was to come for the next 18 months. I mean, as I said, history will say that the Neil Deere years were they're almost almost a joke in pop culture, aren't they, really? Like, you know, the, the Neil Deers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that didn't go overly well. And, and the next year and a half were, were pretty tough times because... I think there were some pretty unhappy people at the footy club at that time. Yeah, because he had, what, four wins in, in 2012 and then he only had the one win in 2013. What was your sort of take on Mark Neal? How did you see him as a coach and 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 what was your relationship like with him? Um, uh, Putting it politely, not good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, it's actually a long, long story. Um. Look, long story short, I don't believe that Neildy liked me. Um, I don't think he liked any of us, to be honest, the, the way things ended up. Um, but Neildy was actually the senior coach at the Western Jets when I was coming through. And this is before he went to Collingwood. So I played three games when I was under 16 for the Western Jets in the under-18s when Mark Neild was coach. He picked me for three games in the under-18s as coach when I was under-16s. So I just assumed he must think I'm all right and he must rate me a fair bit if he's picking me, you know, out of my age group. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Um, 
and then he off, went off to coach at Collingwood and, and by all reports did a great job and the Collingwood people loved him and as we know they had success they won the flag and went to the grand final the next year and then he came to Melbourne and I honestly think look there are multiple stories that what frustrates me about these stories mate is that I hear about these after he's gone about issues that he had with me that had happened when I was a junior footballer now, now a couple of things firstly I didn't know anything about these. I actually think he confused me with another young player that he coached. That's the only thing that I can describe happened. But my first thing with this is, mate, if there are issues that happened when I was a kid, I was 16. Like, you don't hold grudges against a kid. Secondly, if there are issues, pull me in and talk to me about them and say, hey, mate, these are my perception of you. These are things that happened between us that I remember. Um, Let's have a chat about these and, and put it out on the table. You don't, as a grown man who's previously been a a school teacher and then a coach, hold a grudge against a 16-year-old kid. I just think that's quite poor. And what really frustrates me about it is the fact that I never heard about any of these issues until he had gone through other players who might have been in the leadership group or something like that. And we have a laugh about them now because it's completely preposterous. And, And frankly, the things that I've heard are just untrue which I genuinely believe think he's got me confused with another kid. But wow. it just frustrates me that a, a, a grown a grown man holds a grudge against a 16-year-old. I think that's quite childish, to be honest. And look, uh, for wanting, look, without going too hard on him, I, I think that probably sums up what went wrong with him as a coach, to be honest. Um, it, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I won't dwell too much on it. I won't say too much that... No, that's um, fair enough. Yeah, definitely. Into trouble. But... Um, you know, I think it's fair to say um, I've got no time for him as a human. Um, now, uh, I didn't really at the time, um, and I don't think I'd be alone in saying that. Um, and, yeah, that's probably that. But, um, anyway, it's, it's probably as honest as I can be without divulging too much. No, I definitely appreciate your honesty. J- just one last thing on, on Mark Neild. Do you think he ever had potential to be a successful AFL coach with the way he was? What I will say, half in Neody's defence, is that when I was at the Western Jets as an under-16, and he'd been the coach of the under-18s for a while, he already had a reputation of, of being a bit of a hard-ass and a bit fearsome and, and all those kinds of things. And, and I must admit, when I was an under-16 and I played for him as an under-18, in the under-18s, I quite enjoyed Neody. And when he got the job at Melbourne, I was excited because I'd had previous experience with him and, and thought that he liked me. I, I turned out to be quite wrong. But So that was my initial thought about him. I think what had happened, though, he did have a hardness to him. And at the time... I think the media perception of Melbourne was that we were a bit soft and there are a few things that um, I guess, yeah, we needed to harden up a bit for want of a better phrase. So Neody already had that. And then I think the mandate from the those above him who hired him was you need to go in and be a hard ass and toughen these guys up. So I actually think he went to the next level again and it was just, to be honest, mate, it was it was a debacle. Um, an absolute debacle. I think in any other workplace, it would probably be seen as workplace bullying. Um, it just—it was simply, you know, some of the stuff that happened that happened was unacceptable. 
and looking back on it now, again, you've got to remember, I've only played one AFL game and I'm in my third year in the system. So I was pretty naive at the time. But the reality was, mate, we're going into the 2012 season and we're trying to implement the Collingwood game plan that saw them be successful in 2010. So not only was the man management an issue, but the actual game plan was out of date by the time he started trying to teach it. Put it all together... Um, and we have ordinary results on the field already. And then you've got man management issues. It's no wonder that the place was an absolute schmozzle. Yeah, right. What I will say to that is you speak to anyone from the Collingwood era at that time, so when Mick Malthouse was coach and Neildy was an assistant, they couldn't speak higher of So, look, we obviously didn't get the, the experience that the Collingwood players did. He was at Essendon for a bit after Melbourne, he was at the Eastern Rangers for a bit. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he's working in football any longer. Um, and I think that probably says a bit. Yeah. I mean, 2000, I mean, 2012 was, was bad, but 2013 was just terrible year for Melbourne. I mean, yep. looking, at some, looking at some of these statistics, I mean, your average losing margin was 64 points. And I know you didn't play in all of these games, but the first three games of the season, 79 points to Port Adelaide, 148 to Essendon, 94 to the Eagles. And, and some of these margins, 122 points, 2 by 95 points, 90 points, 83 points. The only team that season to lose to GWS and obviously coincided with, with Neil sacking. Surely that period was, was tough for you and, and the group. They would have hoped for this, but never in your wildest dreams would you have thought Port Adelaide would come to the G in round one and absolutely obliterate the home team Melbourne by 79 points. 19, 19, 133 to 8. Six, a massive 148-point victory. Essendon's second-greatest winning margin ever against anyone in their 117-year history. It's a smashing. It's an absolute building. Have been brushed aside easily, Melbourne. Just a leaf on North Melbourne's freeway this afternoon. You're right. It was tough. I think they they ended up removing Cambridge. CEO after a couple of rounds that year, you could again, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was the first to go, and, and then and Neildy saw up until the bye, and, and that was it for him. Um, he was probably lucky to get that long in hindsight. I mean, the, the the issue with that was it wasn't dissimilar to the year before in that you know there was a man management issues and, and probably players a bit unhappy, but coming into his first year, you have that optimism and and a new coach, so. Everyone's sort of up and about excited and curious as to where it will go. Whereas coming into the next year, you had those man management issues. You had players already a bit unhappy from the year before. So you lost that enthusiasm, the excitement of the new coach. And all that you had were poor results. And, you know, look, the players aren't completely blameless. I mean, the reality is the players are the ones who play. So to lose by those margins is pretty bad. But I think the, the results are a... a the results are a result of the environment that, that they're in. And, and players just were unhappy in life, I think, due to what was going on. And when you're unhappy, you're not going to perform at your best. It doesn't matter what your job is, whether you're an elite athlete, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a tradie, it doesn't matter. If you're unhappy, you're not going to perform at your absolute best. So, yeah, look, it wasn't a great time. I played a pre-season game against Port Adelaide, and, and don't get me wrong, mate, I, I was appalling this day. It was one of the worst games of football I've ever played. 
we played in Renmark in South Australia. It was boiling hot. I think it was nearly 40 degrees. And I was shocking. And after the game, um, he pulled me into his office during the week and, and absolutely read the right act to me. And to be honest, mate, I deserved it. Like, I was shocking. More than happy to put my hand up for that. But again, it came down to the, oh, you didn't try on the weekend and the effort wasn't there. Now, I've never met a footballer in my entire life, men, woman, child, adult, that hasn't tried on a weekend. They might have a stinking game and do things that aren't good enough, but no one goes out there to not try. And for mine, if you're going out with the you didn't try or your effort isn't good enough, that just means that you can't pinpoint what's actually going on and it's a cop-out. Anyway, I got all that garbage, etc. And then he finished it, and to be honest, I, I laugh about it now. He finished it with, all right, get out of my office. I don't want to talk to you again until you prove to me you want to be a footballer. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. I've, I've been, a, I was shocked him again, so I deserved everything I got. Anyway, the next few weeks went by, and then the VFL season came around, and I played pretty well to start the VFL year. I started strong. I was playing in the forward line. I was kicking goals, the, the ball. And after a couple of weeks in the VFL, <laughs> he pulled me into his office one day. And actually said to me, all right, 50, I'm prepared to talk to you again now that you've shown me you want to be a footballer. <laughs> and I just was like, oh, you actually followed through with that, did you? Like, you actually decided you're going to go out of your way to not talk to one of your players for a six-week period? Like, come on, mate, grow up. Like, this isn't high school. So I actually almost laughed when he said it to me at the time. Um, but yeah, I was playing in the VFL, and the VFL team was winning. Um, so I was probably enjoying my footy. Um, and I've said this before. I was coming out of contract at the end of that year, and it was 2013. And me and one of my best mates were actually looking at booking tickets to Brazil the next year to go to the FIFA World Cup. That's that's how sure I was that you know I was going to be done with footy at the end of the year. Wow, you'd already almost said your goodbyes, really. Well, I just knew that. I mean, you know, he doesn't like me. He has no interest in playing me, and, and whatever else. And don't get me wrong. I was going to training and training and doing the right things and I was playing on the week and, and busting my ass off because it's a pride thing. You want to do a good job. You want to play well um, and you want to do the right thing by the team and the teammates around you. So there was no no form of dissent from myself. I just sort of accepted that, oh, well, that's, that's probably it. And, um, you know, about halfway through that period, Neil Craig called me into his office early one morning. He said, Fitzy, I want you to buy me a coffee tomorrow morning. Come to training at this time. I could have been whatever. It was it was nice and early. We just had a really good chat um, in in his office together. And he asked me. He said, "Fitz, is, is football what you really want to do? Do you want to be a footballer?" And I said yes to him. I, I absolutely did because it was true. But he never asked me, "Do you want to be an AFL footballer here?" Because by then I just lost interest I, in terms of playing for Mark Neal. It just didn't do it for me anymore. So I said, "Yep, I do." I want to play well. I want to do these things. That's all I want to do for my whole life. And, and we worked really, really closely together um, over that period of my VFL form, etc. And as I said, it was really, really strong. And I think I played the last two games that Neil coached. I think we played Hawthorne at the G, who we got smashed by. It was 2012, so they, you know, were runners up. And we played Collingwood on Queen's birthday again. You know, they'd just been in the grand final the year before, and they smashed us. So, you know, I'm playing as a tall forward in these games, and. Honest, I think I look back in hindsight and it was almost like we'll play him in these games knowing that he won't do well because the ball will barely go there and then we can say, well, he's had his chance and we'll move him. I almost think it was a set-up to fail type thing, but yeah, Neil ended up getting removed um, and then Craigie took over and, and Craigie played me um, every game for the rest of the year up until 
um, the last couple where I had a concussion. So I missed the last couple through concussion, but I ended up playing I know, 13 or 12 games, or maybe 11 games in a row or something. And it was actually the first time I played multiple games in a row at AFL. And if you actually go back at 2013, I did play some decent footy as a 5 to 10 game, 200 centimetre player, you know, very inexperienced in a struggling team. And if you look at my stats for that year, um, really, really impressive season in terms of, you know, I think it was like most possessions inside 50, most goal involvements in the period that I played in, most goals in the period that I played in and those kinds of things. So on a personal level, I actually was playing some decent footy. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid, subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Yeah, that, that's what I was, I've been really excited to, to ask you because I actually remember watching that period of sort of 10, 11 games. Honestly, along with probably Nathan Jones, I would say you were probably Melbourne's best player in that period. Because every week you were kicking goals, you were presenting, you kicked 15 goals in those 11 games, and you had a bag of four, you had another bag of three, a couple of twos. You just, you were a very consistent performer. And that's a rare trait for, you know, I know you played as a forward a little bit as well, but as a ruckman to kick goals regularly, that period, that 11 game period, I'm sure is something you look at with a great sense of pride because it certainly was the best period of your career in terms of playing. I like the way he goes about it, Jack Fitzpatrick. It's Patrick from 35 metres out. It's a very straight kick. It's the perfect start for the Deans. Ball's over the top. Goal, Melbourne. Goal, Fitzpatrick. Good rebound footy. Back to Fitzpatrick. He's got three. Something from nothing. And Melbourne are 10 points up. And he can put it lace out. And he can bang it through in his 10th game for his personal best of four goals. And they're still in it. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely was. And I think it, look, you know, unfortunately, I only ended up lasting the eight years and, and retired with concussion and, and your different issues and whether it be injuries or form sort of, um, you know, I never really got to show what I could do. But you're right, in those 11, uh, the second half of that season, I was playing some really decent footy. And I think a lot of people externally were um, talking about it, you know, um, whether it be, you know, all the, the football shows and, um, I personally am a footy nerd, so I love watching all that stuff. I listen to the talkback radio, I watch the footy shows, and it was great to hear people talking, you know, how well I was going. And literally in the space of six weeks, um, it wouldn't have even been six weeks, I had gone from looking at flights and booking tickets to the World Cup to having a contract offer on the table from the footy club. It's amazing how quickly things can turn. Um, and yeah, it was, from an AFL point of view, I was, yeah, it was 11 weeks in a row. You're right, I was kicking goals, I was getting you know, regularly involved in the ball. And, and this is in a team that, as you said, was struggling. So for a player to be playing as a second ruckman in a team that's not having a lot of inside 50s, I was pretty proud of my performance in the second half of that year. And it's just unfortunate that, um, yeah, I never really got that consistency at AFL level again. The next two seasons at Melbourne, obviously under Paul Ruse, 
Yeah. Are you are you disappointed that you never really got back to that second half of 2013 form, and that you had you know injuries and setbacks, and which eventually led you to being delisted at the end of, of 2015? Yeah, I think 2014, Ruzi takes over as the coach, um, and I played the first three games under Ruzi. It was the first time I'd actually started the in the team. I'd always been in the VFL to start the year, and I was shocked. I'm happy, you know, I'm generally pretty honest with my performances and I was shocking. The first game, um, we were playing St Kilda and I actually was going okay, but I got concussed halfway through the second quarter. And then I played the next two games. We played West Coast at the G and got annihilated. And then we played GWS in Sydney and Wetland and I was really, really ordinary. And I got dropped and deservedly so. Um, I was really, really poor. So I got dropped, went back to VFL and just really really struggled for a long period of time and I couldn't put my finger on what it was we playing at Melbourne over six years the Casey teams of VFL I think we made top four every year but one we were continually consistent my VFL form was generally always really good this year for whatever reason we struggled at VFL we barely won a game we just it just wasn't working and happening for us and my form was just struggling and it was one of those ones where I then start trying too hard which just makes you playing worse and it was getting frustrating because I wasn't getting a chance in the seniors but I wasn't really deserving one on form yet you could have put me in because the seniors were sort of up and down and there were players not you know playing that well but I wasn't banging the door down as I had previously so it was so frustrating because I knew I had a lot to contribute I was coming off that 2013 season where you know I'd clearly established I could play at the level I felt I was you know, in Melbourne's bed, 22, and it just wasn't happening. I, I did have a couple of um, issues that were going on um, health-wise. Um, nothing major, but, um, yeah, like, you know, you look at, we had a VFL bye one week, and I actually had to get a colonoscopy during the bye just to go in and clear up and make sure things were okay. So I'm not using that as an excuse, but I just don't think I was quite, quite right. I wasn't absolutely spot on. But anyway, the second half of the year came around and I started playing consistently and playing okay again and I got back in the AFL side for the last two games for the year um, so I only played the five games for the year and again look I actually played okay the last two games for the year I think I kicked um, I think I kicked a goal and two or none and two or something whatever it was and those last two games I thought yeah this is again what I can offer at this level but it was just frustrating that I bookended the year with three games and two, but nothing in between. Um, so I got to the end of 2014 and was frustrated with the year that I'd had, but had no complaints with it because I didn't really deserve to play. And then it came into 2015 and it was my last year at the club. And again, I've got no personal issues with, with Ruzi or whatever. And I think sort of, you know, by the time 2015 came around, at this stage, the club had seen me. I'd been there for five years. I'd had my chance. It hadn't quite worked out. I will say I was frustrated throughout most of 2015 because I was playing some really good VFL footy. I actually got moved to fullback. Um, I was playing fullback instead of halfback in the VFL that year, and my form was, you know, without wanting to pump myself up too much, mate. I was like, um, I was dominant. I really was. Intercept marks, not getting goals kicked on me. I was, I was genuinely dominant, um, and I just couldn't get a game in the seniors. I played three games for the year. Played fullback in each of them. I kept my man goalless in two of the three games. Even kicked a goal in one of the games. Still got dropped 
admittedly that was after the tunnel ball debacle. Not sure if you recall that or if you were going to bring it up. But, um, that, yeah, we played Colin Queen's birthday MCG, um, and it was the last game I played for Melbourne. I played a really, really, really good game. Played at fullback, kept my man goalless, more possessions than him, kicked a goal, did some really good stuff. Just had one moment in the third quarter that unfortunately I went to rush the ball from through for a behind, but um, it looked like I threw it through my leg for a tunnel ball and, and gave away a free kick. And that yes, was the last of course, game. of course. Yeah, yeah, that was the last game of AFL I ever played uh, for, for Melbourne. So, again, I, I got dropped after that, and I do think it was purely based on the one tunnel ball incident, which I don't think was fair because my game as a whole was actually quite good. Um, but, yeah, for the rest of the year, again, my VFL form was really, really, really good. But... Um, just couldn't I get just a look couldn't in. Get back to the seniors, and it was pretty much after that, after the Collingwood game, um, and I think we went through a period after Queen's birthday. So say that's round eleven. I'm guessing it could have been thirteen, it could have been ten. I'm not sure, but say it's round eleven. It's halfway through the year. I think we went through a period at Melbourne where the next four weeks, the key forward for the opposition kicked a bag. It was something like we played Essendon and Danaher kicked six, and then played West Coast and Kennedy kicked six, and then whoever it was, it might have been Jay Schultz kicked six. Whoever it was or whatever it was, um, but they just kept kicking a bag. If I'm not getting a game now, I never will. And it was at that moment I've gone, yep, I think my time at Melbourne has done. So, look, I have frustrations about 2015 because I think my performance deserved more games than I got. I only played the three games. Um, But other than personally not thinking I got the opportunities in 2015 that I deserved, I have no issue with Rusey or any of the coaches at the time. Whereas you go back to previously under Neil, um, you know, I don't think I got the opportunities I deserve, but, you know, there are also some personal issues that, that I look back and go, yeah, you weren't great. So, um, you know, Simon Goodwin, it was his first year at Melbourne. He was the assistant coach at the time. Rusey was a senior coach. The ironic thing, as you said earlier, Todd Viney played me in my first game for Melbourne when he was the coach, and then he was the list manager when they got rid of me. So things really did come full circle. Yeah, wow. Uh, but... Look, you know, even in my exit interview with them, um, I knew that things were done. Um, but I said, look, I have no doubt I'm in Melbourne's best 22 and I have a lot to offer. I just don't think this year I, I really got the opportunity that I deserved. They sort of half agreed with it. Um, and it was pretty much a, yeah, look, it's just been six years and things haven't worked out. And look, I do see that side of the argument as well. I, I really do. I mean, the reality is I've been there for six years and played, what, 22 games and... 11 of those 22 were, were in one season. So, um, look, I, I understood their decision. Um, they actually said to me in my exit interview that they were confident I would end up elsewhere. Uh, they thought another club would give me a chance because my VFL form was so good. Um, and again, I, I showed at AFL level time and time again, like, you know, my form that year was okay. I, I played some decent footy in some of the other games I played for Melbourne. It just wasn't on a regular basis. So, again, no real issue with the club at the time. It's just how things ended. Um, and then the one thing I will say, I think that the listing process itself could have been handled a fair bit better. Um, but other than that, yeah, that was sort of the end of my time there. So how did Hawthorne come about? Completely random. Completely random. Um, the, yeah, the delisting process at... Melbourne sort of went through and look that did frustrate me the process itself was handled pretty poorly um, and it wasn't just for myself it was the, th- the three players that year myself Jordy McKenzie or four players Rowan Bale and Aidan Riley 
we'd all mainly played in the VFL that year and all four of us were playing pretty good footy. But I received a phone call um, on a Monday. It was the Monday after the accident interview, so a week and a half after the season, from a club in Perth, from one of the waffle clubs, asking if I'd be interested in going to play because they'd heard that I'd been delisted and I hadn't been told by the club yet. And then I said, oh, mate, look, I think I'm about to be, but I haven't heard anything. And he goes, oh, geez, mate, I, sorry, the mail we had was that you have been. I said, oh, well, no, we haven't heard anything. And then this person said, oh, well, I was actually about to make a couple of other phone calls. Should I hold off? I said, just out of curiosity, who are you going to call? Because none of us have heard anything. And the four players he was going to call was myself, Jordy McKenzie, Rowan Bale and Aidan Riley. So the four players who'd been delisted. Um, but none of us had heard, and we didn't actually get told by the footy club until the Friday. So I did have issues with the fact that a club in Perth, 3,000 kilometres away, knew that I'd been delisted four days before I had. Yeah, so understandable. Definitely it understandable. That wasn't just a guess. Like, they got the four players spot on. Um, so th- that's what I mean by the process. I think that could have been done better. I mean, even if the news had have got out earlier and it had been done over that weekend... Then tell us in the exit interview that we had the previous week. Like, you don't need to wait that extra week or two. So th- that's the issue that I had, not not the actual decision itself. But anyway, sorry, to go back to your question, I'd spoken, as I said, the second half of the year, I'd sort of resigned myself to the fact that I think Melbourne had sort of ran its course for me. Um, and I'd spoken to one or two other clubs throughout the last few weeks of that year. Um, and again, I've always been proud and stubborn, as I said before. So... Pride of performance is always something and wanting to win and, and do well. So my form at VFL continued. Um, but also there was an element of, well, you want to keep playing well anyway because if there are people out there watching you. Um, but anyway, Hawthorne just completely came out of the blue. Um, I was staying at my, my girlfriend at the time's house. We watched the Brownlow medal together on the Monday night. Um, and I received a manager uh, a phone call from a manager on the Tuesday after the Brownlow. He said, mate, what are your movements for the rest of this week? And I said, oh, look, I'm pretty quiet. I was doing the footy show grand final. If you remember the, the footy show review where the players get up and do a dance and make an idiot of themselves. Of course, yes. Um, yeah, I was doing that with Gorney and, and Danny. It was actually a really good week. And that was quite busy in terms of, mate, that's fun, but geez, you do a lot of rehearsing for that. But um, that was my, my movements. I said, why do you ask? He goes, well, Hawthorne actually want to meet up with you. And this was, as I said, the day after the grand final. And this is 2015. So Hawthorne are going to play West Coast in the grand final for their fourth grand final in a row. They're going to win three in a row. I thought, geez, that's completely out of the blue. Um, I'm assuming they want to catch up next week after the grand final. And my manager goes, no, they actually are keen to meet up sooner rather than later. I thought, geez, okay. Anyway, long story short, we couldn't find a time to work. They obviously had grand final week to prepare for. And I had my footy show grand final stuff. Um, so that my manager said, oh, they'll be in touch. But yeah, the next week after the grand final, they want to catch up for a coffee. And actually, it was Saturday morning. I still can't believe this when I look in hindsight that Graham Wright, obviously the list manager at Hawthorne, sent me a text. As I said, Saturday morning, this is the morning of the grand final. They're going for four or three in a row. And the list manager sends me a text. Hey, Fitzy, how would you like to meet at this cafe this time on, on Tuesday morning? And I just thought, mate, absolutely, I'll be there with bells on. Good luck today. And I just thought, imagine him thinking of me, a bloke who could barely get a game for Melbourne when they're going for another grand final. I thought it was incredible. So 
I didn't tell anyone. The only person I told was my partner at the time. I didn't tell family. I didn't tell my mum, my dad, my brother. So I was watching the grand final that day. We had our, you know, traditional grand final day barbecue, and I was cheering for Hawthorne, thinking, geez, how good would this be? I grew up barracking for Hawthorne. Um, and then the meeting that we'd organised was the Tuesday at a local cafe, and I still remember the meeting was at 1 o'clock. And at 11.30, Hawthorne called a press conference to announce the retirement of David Hale and Brian Lake. And I've just thought, geez, I've played five years of my AFL career as a, as a forward slash second ruck, and I played all of last year as a fullback. I'm having a meeting with this club, and an hour and a half before that, their fullback and their forward and second ruck are retiring. It, things are falling into place. And then I, I went to the meeting, and it was, um, you know, this is Hawthorne footy club, arguably best team in the history of AFL. You know, they're certainly in the top five. We're the number one semantics. But, you know, that they're as good an organisation as you could possibly go to. And I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, who, whilst I have a lot of self-belief, I've delivered at AFL level before, just not at the consistency I would like. They're, I've got to go there and convince them that I would be a good pick for them. But then I go and have the coffee with Graham Wright. And it was almost like he was trying to sell Hawthorne to me. And I was like, mate, you, I just was in my head, was like, you don't have to do this. You could, I'd go play there for free. Like, you don't need to sell anything to me. So um, that went okay. I then was scheduled to meet Clarko the week later. I met Clarko. Um, he came up. I remember I was so nervous that he came in and it was at Waverley Park, the meeting. And the last time I'd been at Waverley Park, as I said, I grew up a Hawthorne supporter, it was actually the last game at Waverley, reminiscing, thinking I used to go here with my dad every week and, and all these kinds of things. So I was sort of in a bit of a, you know, oh, how cool is this? And then Clarko walked in behind me. He was wearing just bike shorts and a singlet he'd been doing in the gym. He was nice and sweaty. And he just walks in and goes, Big Fitzy, hello, mate. And I turned around and didn't know whether to call him Alistair or Clarko. So in the end, I did neither. I was like, oh, g'day, I... Oh, I've blown, blown it already. But um, again, the, the, we sat down and chatted for half an hour and, and 40 minutes. Um, and just, yeah, it was a general chat. Like, you know, we saw you do a lot of good things at Melbourne. Why do you think it didn't work out properly? We spoke about the 2013 season. And they actually said that at the time they were interested um, in coming, in, in, you know, getting me across then. And I thought, why didn't you do it? I could have two flying for now. But, um, yeah, it's just funny how things work. So, yeah, I again thought, look, I hope this goes well. And at the end of the meet, Clark, shook my hand and said, well, it's good to have another player on board. Um, another big man on board, sorry. And I thought, wow, am, am I at Hawthorne? So, um, yeah, I just I called my manager straight away and he goes, sweet, we'll, we'll pretty much, you know, it's not done until we get it done, but it's pretty much done. And again, this is funny how the media works, mate. Um, I literally still hadn't told my parents at this stage. So I went to drop into my dad's office. So Hawthorne in Mulgrave, my dad was working just around the corner at the time. So I called him and said, Dad, are you at work? He goes, yeah. I said, can I pop in? He goes, yeah, is everything okay? I said, yeah, I just want to come in. So I popped in and told him I've actually just been around the corner. I met Clarko. Um, I think I'm going to play for Hawthorne. I then called mum, told her the same thing. And by the time I got off the phone call to mum, I still hadn't told my younger brother, and we're quite close. We, you know, he's probably my harshest critic and, and knows my football better than anyone else. I'm getting phone calls from Herald Sun journalists saying, I believe you've got some exciting news and you're about to move. And I still to this day don't know how the news got out because I didn't tell anybody. 
let alone my family. Um, but it's just, you know, the media, they're good at what they do, that's for sure. So by the time I got home in the Arbor, it was all in the papers. And yeah, it was the next week, I think. Um, I knew I was, we'd sort of agreed on it. My, my manager had said, yeah, don't. I thought I was going to go as a delisted free agent. Um, until the next week, I was actually at the Geelong Cup with one of my best mates who, funnily enough, we grew up, we were Hawthorne supporters together from the age of about year eight. We used to go watch Hawthorne every week. We used to go to Best and Ferris, all those kinds of things. We were together and I got a call from a girl in my manager's office and she said, guess what I'm signing? Well, you know, quite a few beers deep at the races by this stage. And I said, no idea, what's up? She goes, well, you now play for Hawthorne, you've just been traded. Um, and I thought, wow, really? She goes, yep, that's officially done. So fair to say the rest of the afternoon and night was a big celebration and my phone was going red hot because... Yeah, Jack Fitzpatrick has been traded from um, Melbourne to, to Hawthorne. So, you know, the, the the Melbourne bloke who couldn't get a game in a club that struggled had just gone to a team that's won three in a row. And it was amazing how it all came about. That That is an awesome story. You knew it was coming, right? Don't deny it. We all knew. Three-quarter time here in A5Q. And that means giving you guys a little snipper of another guest I've got coming on the show in the next couple of weeks. I had the pleasure of sitting down and having a chat with former North Melbourne and Geelong Ruckman Hamish McIntosh, who was a very, very good player back in the day, but unfortunately had a lot of injuries that sort of set him back. And and it's a shame because had he not had some of those injuries, who knows how good he could have been. He could have been in the top echelon of Ruckman in the competition or in the same realm as, as your Nick Nadanui's, your Max Gaunt, your Sam Jacobs, Brody Grundy's, these sort of guys. And it unfortunately didn't quite work out that way, but... He's got a really good story, and I, I think this is going to be an episode that you guys are really, really going to enjoy. So here's a little teaser of it. Definitely very frustrating. Um, yeah, I found it yeah very difficult, mate, at the, um, yeah, the time. So I guess that year was my toughest year in football. I was going to talk about tough years. So yeah, it was just, yeah, physically, I was obviously having my battles. And then... Um, yeah, mate, obviously mentally I found it really difficult as well. Going to a new club and not being able to um, not being able to play at all. Um, barely going out the training track and just being out in front of all those superstars, in front of like Enright, um, Johnson, Selwood, um, you know, Chapman, all these stars at the footy club. To not even play a game my first year there, they recruited me as a ruckman um, and we lost the first spot. We lost the prelim final by a goal. And we had Blitzab Rucken, who played about three games of football. Um, yeah, look, I was just yeah, mentally, mate, I was shot that year. I was just, it was incredibly difficult, mate. And uh, that was a year of football I would rather forget. But yeah, just physically and mentally, I was, I was cooked and didn't have a great year in either, in either aspect, mate. And I could have handled myself so much better mentally, but I didn't. Not only was Hamish McIntosh a very good player, not only is he a good person, but he's got a great attitude and he puts things into perspective. And I think you guys are really going to notice that when you listen to the full episode that, by the way, will drop in the next couple of weeks. But until then, let's get back to Fitzy. Uh, and and how was the, the Hawthorne experience? Obviously, you spent two seasons there and, and you, you're probably best known for that goal. You, you kicked against Collingwood to, to tie the scores and then eventually to win by a point to, to get Hawthorne into the top four. How were those two seasons at Hawthorne and in comparison to the Melbourne experience in terms of the football club? Football club, the funny thing I will say, that I remember um, before going back to pre-season, 
One thing that Melbourne, I thought we did, particularly in a couple of years under Paul Ruse, um, even under Mark Neal, we worked really, really hard. We really did. We, we trained hard. Our standards were high in terms of, you know, players not being late to training and weighing in, weighing out, all those kinds of things. And I just thought, if that's what it's like at Melbourne, Hawthorne's going to be like being in the army. Like, it's going to be a next level. But the thing that I found most amazing was how much more relaxed it was. You actually could go and just be yourself and enjoy it. And, yep, you had to go there and work hard, but you could actually relax and be there and play footy. And at Melbourne, I think it was everyone was on eggshells a little bit. Players were concerned for their spot in the team, about next contract. If they had a half an hour spare, they couldn't go get a coffee because they thought, I need to be seen to be doing extra weights or handballing or vision or whatever it is. Whereas at Hawthorne, you go there, when it's time to train, they train and they train hard. But if you've got an extra half hour, go and grab a coffee or go and do whatever else, play basketball, play some cricket, whatever it is, actually make it a footy club. That was the biggest difference I found. Um, And obviously the confidence of the difference at Melbourne was because we'd struggled for so long. You know, you have players, Shannon Burns comes from Geelong and Chris Dawes and Heritia Lumumba come from Collingwood and they say, guys, we are working as hard, probably harder than Geelong and Collingwood at the time. But you just don't know and it's a bit of blind faith. But Hawthorne, knew what they did worked. It had taken them to four grand finals. They'd won the last three. They probably should have won four. They'd been in the prelim before that. They were such an experienced group that it was just supreme confidence. And it wasn't arrogance. It was just, we know what we do works and we don't need to deviate from that. Um, The year itself, it was a funny one. Again, I had a pretty good pre-season. Was doing a lot of the right things, training quite well, Getting towards the end of pre-season, Hawthorne did this exercise where the players would split into small groups of about seven or eight and actually pick their, their starting 22 from round one. Um, and it was just a feedback session to, A, the, you know, this is who's going well, these are the young... If you're not in the team, these are the reasons why. But it was purely picked by the players. It was a great feedback exercise. And most of the teams actually had me in their team for round one based on how I'd been training over pre-season. And also based on the fact Ruffy had his issues at the time, so Ruffy wasn't playing, um, so that obviously was a spot. But, yeah, I was in most of those teams for round one, and I was going quite well. And then, unfortunately, mate, second uh, NAB game of the year, we played Richmond, um, and I hyperextended my knee um, in the last quarter. So that meant about six weeks out or whatever it was. And frustratingly at the time, um, Jared Roughhead obviously had his issues that he was going through. So he, that was the year he missed with his cancer stuff. Um, Ryan Schoenmakers, who'd sort of been in and out and always been in the back line, he had that breakout final series, a grand final, if you remember, in 2015. But he had issues with his groins at the time, Shuey. Um, so he wasn't playing. So literally, at the time, playing in Hawthorne's forward line was James Sicily, who, as we know, Sicily's a good player, but he was quite young at the time, I think 19 or 20, and Tim O'Brien, who, again, was, was quite young. Literally, all I had to do was stay fit. I would have got games by default, and unfortunately, I just couldn't get a game, and it, that couldn't get fit. And at the same time, my granddad, who I was really, really, really close to, um, he was really sick and ended up passing away in the Easter of that year. So because I was in the rehab group, I was sort of a bit taken away from everything and I was spending every spare moment I had in hospital with my granddad until he passed 
Then I came back not long after he passed. And in my third game back in the VFL again, I was playing okay, getting back to some decent form. I, I got a concussion, which I think was the third last of my career, but it was the first long-term one that I'd had. Funnily enough, it was actually at Werribee. We were playing Werribee, and I copped a knee from the head of my teammate. And I think I missed about 10 weeks in the end with that concussion from injury back to playing. So again, you know, I had one or two weeks where I wasn't doing a lot and then slowly building up in my recovery. So it sort of got to three quarters of the way through that season. And Hawthorne just kept winning games, kept winning games. It was 2016, if you remember. I think they won six games or whatever it was by less than 10 points or something. Um, And look, they were in the top four again, but they were sort of just plugging away. They weren't flying. Um, But I just couldn't get fit. Anyway, I got back from my concussion, started playing in the VFL, was playing quite good, but by this stage, it's the last four rounds of the year, and it started to get to that point where I think it was almost a bit of an acceptance of, look, we've had a year here, Fitz, and, and you know, you've you know, worked hard and, and done a lot, but it just hasn't quite worked out, and then in the second last game of the year, we're, we're playing West Coast over in Perth, and John Segler does his knee, and, and, and does his ACL, and all of a sudden slot open for me. So after all of that year where it could have gone so different for me and I probably could have played 20 games by that point if I'd stayed fit and healthy, um, I hadn't got a game at all. And yeah, that, that slot opened up and I played against Collingwood and, you know, history will show, yeah, kicked a pretty good goal at the end of it. Hawthorne, as you can see, off the pace. They've got to do something special. Bergwijn does. Fitzpatrick breaks. Bacon goal square, long kick, how will it bounce? It's split for a goal. Was a level again. Uh, the unlikely source, he was the Ruckman. One last roll of the dice, I don't think they've got time. There's the siren. What a remarkable game. Hawthorne a third. They win by a point. It was such a big moment because it actually wasn't the winning goal in the game. Um, it was partly because I grew up watching Hawthorne for so long and I was finally making it my Hawthorne debut, but it was actually the reward of such a long and tough year. Tough from a personal perspective, losing my granddad, who I was really, really close to, but also tough from a footy perspective because I felt like I was doing the right thing. I felt like the club wanted me there and I would have been playing if fit, but it just wasn't happening. So that was tough in its own way of going, geez, how unlucky am I? So to then play that game, play okay, kick a goal, and then play in the two finals, um, even though we lost those two finals, mate, they were probably you know two of the most fun nights of my life. Like playing finals was so 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 good, and yeah, it, um, that was the end of the year. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to win one because that that week of final, we played Geelong in the game where Isaac Smith missed after the siren, and then Bruce finds a man. They do it again. Five games by under a goal this year. Oh. oh, wow. Isaac Smith. To put Hawthorne into the prelim final for the sixth consecutive year. A wry smile. Heart thumping. Chest beating. Steady hand. Good looking kick, but he's hooked it. Geelong have won. Geelong, the Cats. Are into the prelim. It was a night to remember.
I still say that he cost me a flag. I, I don't bring up the fact I kicked zero goals three that night. I will com- completely blame Isaac. Um, and then we played the Bulldogs the next week, which is an interesting game to look at. They obviously won the flag that year, the Bulldogs. Um, and on the night, you can take nothing. Like, they smashed us that night. They smashed us. But they beat us by, you know, however much it was, and they deserved to beat us. It's been 55 years to the day that won consecutive finals. genuinely believe if you play that game 10 times we probably win eight of them that's not how footy goes it, it goes you know um that they deserve to beat us on the night so no qualms but um i do believe that if isaac had have kicked the goal and i'm not blaming isaac because there are other things in the game that go on for example if i had to kick three straight instead of zero goals three um but if we win that prelim we go sorry we go into a prelim at the g against sydney who was beaten that year um, they beat us at the G, but we should have won. We kicked ourselves out of it. And then we beat them at the SCG. I think we would have beaten them and pretty comfortably. And then um, the next week, I, I honestly, with the team we had, Lewis, Hodge, Mitchell, Virgil, Burgoyne, Gibson, the list goes on. I don't think anyone would have beat us in a grand final. I, I honestly don't think it would have mattered who we played. However, that's not how footy goes, mate. So that was my yeah first 12 months at Hawthorne and... Um, you know, very quickly under 2017. It's funny how things work. Um, I had my end of year review and the club said, oh, um, we're not sure where things are going to go. I actually had some interest from Sydney at the time. Sydney were interested if I'd go up and play there, which would have been great. But, um, you know, I was enjoying Hawthorne and I felt they liked me. So my manager and I said, look, as long as we can get it in writing that Hawthorne will retake me, we won't go down the Sydney path. But, you know, that would have been amazing to play for Sydney, such a good culture. Get to play with Buddy for however long, mate. But, no, so Hawthorne said, um, we're going to delist you, but we, we will re-rookie you. And we got it in um, got it in writing, and, and that's how it panned out. So the funny thing was, mate, I actually got the flick from Melbourne, but technically never got the flick because I was traded before I... The delisting was official, but Hawthorne, who actually did commit to take me the next year, they actually did delist me. So funny how that worked out. But um, yeah, 2017 ended up being my last year of footy ever. Um, again, started the year in the twos. We recruited Tyrone Vickery, um, and he was sort of playing my spot. And it's fair to say that wasn't working out. He, he wasn't playing well. Ended up coming back and playing VFL for us. And again, my form in the VFL was, you know, by this stage, I was 25, 26 years old. I was the bigger, stronger, taller player, particularly as a rack slash key forward, because a lot of the players you're playing against are, are developing tools. Um, and my form was really, really good. And I probably, you know, deserved the chance now if I a week or two earlier, but I eventually got it. Um, but I don't remember the game. I got a concussion there, and it's, it's the last game of footy I ever played. Was it Stefan Martin that accidentally kneed you in the head? Yeah, it was. It was in a rack contest. It's, um, yeah, I, I actually remember... I was cooked for a while after it, but I looked at the stats the day after the game and I saw I got, I don't know, 70 super coach points or something. And I thought, oh, geez, I've played okay here. That's not a bad day. And then I looked and saw Steph Martin at about 140 and I go, geez, maybe I haven't, haven't had a good day. So um, I still can't remember the game. Um, I haven't watched it back. I've seen the actual incident. I've still got it on my phone. Um, it wasn't dirty. It was completely in play. Um, I was in the ruck and so was he. 
I went, he went to jump early and I slipped him to, for him to go through. But on the way through, unfortunately, his knee collected my head. And um, yeah, I got a free kick for it, which I'm not completely sure was actually there, but I got a free kick. And it's funny, you look back on the replay, the ball comes back to me because I get up straight away. But I drop the ball when it comes back to me. Um, and then I handball it off to Hodgie. Um, and apparently, um, I actually, yeah, took myself off after another minute or two and went straight to the docs and physio and said, I, I don't feel right. But the first thing I can recall from that is after the game, sitting in the doctor's room, um, and I just felt horrid. And it was the ninth concussion I received in my career, but it was different to any others. Even the year before where I missed 10 weeks, whilst I missed 10 weeks or whatever it was, it might have been 12, it might have been 8, um, most of the issues I had were coming back to playing sport. So I was able to wake up every morning and I, I was able to drive to training. I could go out for brunch, do all those kinds of things. But ever, whenever my heart rate would increase was when I would get symptoms, headaches, lightheadedness, dizziness, etc. But this one was different. I was waking up with headaches. I, I couldn't bear to even look at my phone or watch TV. I didn't drive the car for six months, or, uh, sorry, six weeks. So those kinds of things... Um, it was just different, and, and yeah, uh, halfway through my rehab from that, um, or towards the end of my rehab, the, the specialists unfortunately gave me the advice that I don't play contact sport anymore. So there was no no chance of, of getting a new contract anywhere else in 2018, or, or seeking a new contract, I should say. No, so it was um, yeah, it was a pure doctor's decision for um, for me to retire. I, in a way, I'm glad because it was taken out of my hands. Um, it wasn't my decision because, you know, I was 25 turning 26. You're still playing footy. You want to do it, particularly when I started recovering and feeling okay again. Maybe I could do this again, but I think the one thing that, you know, as I said, it wasn't my decision. The doctors made it for me, but I think the one thing that makes it easier is that deep down, it, I know it was probably the right thing to do. So, um, you know, it's tough because, you know, as I said earlier, Dustin Martin, that, that's gone. All these players are my draft. And, and these are, you know, that arguably the best three players in the competition. So I could still be in my prime and, and still playing. And I think the form that I was in, um, like seriously, my VFL form was really good. Um, and you look at who Hawthorne have recruited since, you know, Keegan Brooksby is currently there. Um, they've given chances to players like that. I think I probably would be on the list, to be honest, just based on how my form was and, and looking at the composition of their list at the time. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's not how footy works. No, I'd agree with you there. I think you would still be on the list and, and playing regular football. Just as we're about to, to close up now, there's, there's one more question about Hawthorne I wouldn't mind asking. With the going into the 2016 finals, obviously, as you mentioned, they did go out in straight sets. But pre-finals, like the week before the finals, did you think, did you ever have a moment where you just sat back and thought, gee, I'm a chance here to win a premiership? Because you see Brian Lake comes in 2013, wins three premierships. Ben McAvoy comes in 2014, wins two. James Frawley comes in 2015, wins a premiership. Jack Fitzpatrick comes in 16. Did you think this is my moment where I could be a premiership player? Or did, is it very much take it one week at a time, don't think ahead? Um, oh, look, I can't speak on behalf of other players. Um, but, I mean, you're always looking at that what-if scenario. I mean, it's no different to if you buy a Tazlotto ticket. You allow yourself to think, geez, what happens if I win the $30 million? 
know, like um, it doesn't mean you think it's going to happen and it doesn't mean you're going to go to work the next day and, and you know, do less or be less productive at work. But yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And I think the reality was that, you know, Ruffy wasn't playing. Um, so we, we were missing a valuable cog, but we still had such a good team. Yes, it was aging, but Sam Mitchell had an incredible season. We still had Hodge, we still had Gibson, we still had Lewis, you know, Birchall, Burgoyne, Frawley was playing, Stratton, Gunston, Shield. Like, I could go on and on. Bruce, it's a Popolo Rioli. I haven't even mentioned Cyril. Like, it's a seriously good team. Um, under no illusions that we were probably... Fortunate isn't the right word, but I think the ironic thing about Hawthorne on that year is that, I don't know what the number was, but I think it was six games we won by less than 10 points, something like that. Might have even been nine, I'm not sure. And in a lot of those games, on the balance of play, we probably we probably weren't the better team, but we just got through because we had that experience. You found a way to win. They just found a way to win. And again, you've got to remember, this is when I was either out with my knee or recovering from concussion. And because I was spending so much time away initially with my granddad and then at home with my concussion, I was almost like a supporter because I wasn't really getting to build those relationships with people that you normally do day in, day out at a footy club. So I'm watching this from a very you know removed scenario. But the ironic thing was playing Geelong in that final you go back and watch that game, and I've actually watched it a couple of times. A, it was a, it was a really good game, but we actually were the better team that night, ironically, and it was the one game that was a close one that we actually lost. It, it felt on the night that we were about a four-goal better team, and unfortunately, as always in those Hawthorne-Geelong games, it was just such a good contest. But, I mean, even going into that, mate, like I'd spent six years at Melbourne, and you think of how good from that 08 Hawthorne grand, Geelong Grand Final for the next period of time, how good that rivalry was. And Hawthorne Geelong had so many epic contests regularly at night, but even finals, you think of um, the Burgoyne after he kicks the goal, the hands out wide, it wasn't a final, but the Tomahawk goal after the siren. You think of all these epic contests, Friday night or Saturday night footy, you would clear your schedule to watch Hawthorne versus Geelong. Because you knew you were in for a ripping game of footy. No doubt. And it was like, I've gone from watching this as an AFL lover and a, a Melbourne player actually being involved in it. And my first final is not just the final. It is in probably, at the time, the best rivalry in AFL. So, probably diverted from your question there, but it was an incredible sort of two weeks. And that pre-final buy just extended it. It was completely different again because it was an extra week build-up. Um but to get back to your question of did I allow myself to think about it, yes, I did. Did I expect that we would win the flag? No. Did I think that if we got it right, we were the team to beat? Yes. And the reason... But having said that, we were under no illusion of the fact that the years prior, Hawthorne won so many games throughout the season and they were just better than every other team. Oh, I think in 2013, 14, 15... I know they didn't finish on top of the ladder in all of it, maybe in none. But I think it's fair to say Hawthorne were the best team each year. Um, but this year, I remember when I got to Hawthorne, I just clicked with Sam Mitchell for some reason. We just got each other. I really have loved Mitch and the, A, the way he says footy, but B, his self-confidence is funny, he's intelligent. I think he's going to make a great senior coach, by the way. Um, but I remember talking to him halfway through and he had to make a 
a presentation halfway or towards the end of the year about how Hawthorne got to where they were again. And when I say that, the top four. And he actually was going to do the presentation and he opened with Stephen Bradbury winning the Olympic gold medal. The joke being that we're in the top four again pretty much because everyone else has sort of fallen over, like no standout contender has emerged. So I think there was a clear um, acceptance that Hawthorne weren't as good as they previously had been. Um, But having said that, with so much finals experience and so many big-name players, big-game players, um, I I think if you go back to that final series again, I do generally think the Bulldogs game, we probably beat them eight times if we played them 10. Geelong, I think, maybe 50-50 just on on how those games go. But having said that, the ball play that night was the one. And then if you get to a prelim and a grand final with the team we had playing at the G, I just don't think they would have lost. But when I say they, I mean we. But, um, yeah, that's just un- unfortunately how footy goes, I guess, if that does answer your question. No, it definitely does. And it's, it's just interesting because I, I do agree with you. If if Isaac Smith kicks that guy off the sign, I do agree. I think Hawthorne do the four. And and, yeah. and, and you would have been a premiership player. Because I, I think you would have definitely held your spot into the grand final. Yeah, no, I, I do completely agree, mate. As I said, I you know, I played as a, a forward slash second ruck. Um, and in that first final against Geelong, I had, you know, three shots on goal. Um, as a second ruck, it, it's pretty good. And, and I go back and I still watch the game and there's things I forget I did that whether just be important tackles or important handballs that attacks. You know, I certainly held my spot for the Bulldogs game. Um, and then we played the Bulldogs on the Saturday night. And I, I actually... I only played as a second ruck that day, so I only played about 50% of game time. But my actual time on ground, again, I, I look back, I was reasonably decent that day. I had a high number of tackles. I think I got quite a few clearances. And again, this isn't about 50% game time. So, look, I was reasonably happy with my individual performance from the chances I got. Just, you know, unfortunately, um, yeah, we, we didn't get the job done. As I said, I, I don't want to be taken away from the Bulldogs because, yeah, I do genuinely think we win eight if we play ten, but the one night is all that matters, and they were comprehensively better than us, so I take nothing away from them there. They deserve to win that game. And just as we're about to close up now, I've got three more questions for you. Throughout your entire AFL career, both at Melbourne and at Hawthorne, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who is the best player you ever played against and why? And who is the best coach you ever played under and why? AFL level, Clark, I think that probably speaks for itself. Um... Dean Bailey was terrific, terrific, um, for different reasons. I really enjoyed Craigie, but maybe I'm a bit biased because I feel he sort of, you know, went out of his way and looked after me and really gave me a chance. Um, so they're, they're the three, but Clarko, I mean, you know, he's arguably the greatest coach in the history of the game. So it's hard to go past him. From a junior level, though, and there are a lot of people who helped me at junior level, and I really do have to be thankful, but a quick two, David Dixon. Um, who was a legendary long-time coach of the Vic Metro under-18s team. He was there for a long time throughout the 90s into the 2000s. He was terrific, Dicko. I, I really loved him. Um, he was an excellent coach. He was a hard-ass, but he was a, he was a coach you wanted to play for. He was passionate. He was motivating. He was just a good man. I really loved Dicko. But undoubtedly, the biggest thanks I owe in my entire career is to Alan McConnell from the AIS who I said earlier, helped me so much when I was going through my chronic fatigue syndrome. The support they showed, all of those kinds of things, 
um, yeah, he, he's such a great man, great man. Um, and as I said, I know he's at GWS and now involved in the women's up there. Um, just a great man, and, and I owe him so much. So that's more than one coach, but I, at least I've probably explained it. Um, played with, from for a sheer freak factor, Cyril's hard to go past. But I will say, and this might be controversial, but Liam Jarrah, in terms of freak factor, was every bit as good as Cyril. Um, yeah. the, things, the things he could do. Um, so I think Cyril was a better player, but in terms of a pure freak aspect, Liam Jarrett was was, was remarkable. Um, again, it's another, you know, shame what happened with LJ and, and his career, but um, in terms of best players that I played with, Luke Hodge, freak. Um, I think everyone knows about Hodgie. But Sam Mitchell... I think as good as he is and as respected as he is, Brownlow medalist, All-Australian, Premiership captain, etc. I actually think he's still underrated for how good Sam Mitchell is as a football player. I think he's the greatest player on both sides of the body. Left foot, right foot, the best I've ever seen. He's just incredible. He was tough, smart, um, just an incredible player. And... I actually think that Scott Pendlebury is in a similar aspect of... We talk about... Everyone knows how good Pendles is. Not yet star and does this and does that. But I actually think he's still underrated from how good he is. And I personally think that Sam Mitchell is in that boat. Sam Mitchell is a a genuine superstar. And for mine, he's in the top echelon of players to have played. Not only for Hawthorne, but in the game. He's a superstar. Um... But again, like Sean Burgoyne, how can I go past him? His record stands up with the best of them. He plays back, he plays tall, he plays small, he plays forward. He goes in the middle when you need him to. Um, yeah, geez, it's a hard question to pick. I mean, Sam Mitchell, the confidence that he can give you, though. Um, I love going back to watching my goal against Collingwood, firstly because it was a bloody good goal. 55 uh, out, probably, probably further. What was it, 60? Yeah, I think it was 105 metres. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's killer. That's the best. Yeah, no, look, I don't know how far, but what I actually really, really like about that is the moment of we kick the goal. It's my first game for the club. There's, I don't know how many people. There's, say, 50,000, 60,000. But the crowd's going mad. It's fever pitch. It's, you know, we need to win to get to the top four. It's, it's bonkers. But inside that centre square, there was me, there was Sam Mitchell, there was Sean Burgoyne. And at the centre clearance where... I hit the goal. Cyril was there. Um, he went off and someone else was coming on. But you can actually watch it. If you go watch the replay, there's just this mini conversation that happens between Sean, Mitch and myself. And it was such calmness from Mitch. And it was like, a, yeah, we've been here before. Again, it wasn't an arrogance, but it was a, we just do what we do. We've trained this. we played this. We know what we do holds up. And that's why we won that game by a point. Collingwood have some really good players. They had, you know, side bottom played, Trelaw played, and all these kinds of guys. They had some good players in their own right. Grundy played, for God's sake. But we just stuck to what we knew. And that moment of clarity after that, as I said, you can go back and watch the replay. Whilst they're showing the goal, there's a little box that shows in the bottom right-hand corner. And it is just the tiny little conversation. I still remember the conversation. We were first discussing if we need to win or if a draw would be enough. 
and then, you know, what we do at the centre bounce from that. But it was such a... We could have been at Waverley Park on a Thursday morning doing a run-through of a certain situation because it was so calm and so composed. And that's just what Mitch brought. And that's my favourite part of it. It's not the fact that I kicked the goal. I just look back and I go, everything around is pandemonium. But there was such clarity between the three of us out there and it was just so cool, calm and collected. It was, it was a really great moment. Yeah, again, I've probably given you three or four. That that is awesome. That's an awesome insight for myself and the listeners. That's fantastic. So, is Mitch the best player you've played against as well as with? The the toughest opponent I've ever had was when I was a young player. I was in my first year. I played on Dustin Fletcher. I played at full forward and he played at full back. And he just, oh, it was a football lesson. He gave me a genuine football lesson. And I always loved Dustin Fletcher. I thought he was a superstar. I loved him because he was tall, he was skinny. So for me, growing up watching footy, it was great to watch someone with that build. I've had Fletcher on the show. He's fantastic. Yeah, and ripping bloke by all accounts from everything you've heard. But um, he he taught me a lesson that day. And I literally had one disposal um, for the game. And I kid you not, it was literally... Because the ball was in the back pocket, I was in the forward line. The runner said, Fitzy, come off. So I started jogging towards the bench. So Fletcher stayed where he was, occupied a dangerous spot. And just by chance and coincidence, I was running to the other side of the ground. And we happened to get the ball and switch it. So when we switched it, I was standing on the wing by myself. Took an uncontested chest mark in front of the bench, handballed it off. And that was my day done. So I nearly went statless the entire day against him. So that was the hardest game I think I've ever played, just in terms of I was an 18-year-old kid, fresh into the system. This bloke's been doing it for nearly 400 games. He just taught me a footy lesson. But having said that, I played against Buddy Franklin. And I just think Buddy's next level. Um, One of the greats of all time. I still think that even now, any player in the competition, you're playing a grand final tomorrow and you could pick anyone. If you had fitness guaranteed, I'd probably still pick Buddy based on the fact that his best game out of every player in the comp, five, Martin, Dangerfoot, you name it, Buddy's best game is just... It wins you a game. It, it really does. And obviously, Dusty does as well, and Fife probably does as well. But Buddy's best game, it, it's incomparable compared to everything else. His, his upside is just ridiculous. And, um, yeah, considering I played against him, never directly, um, he has to be the best player I've played against. I think Buddy is one of the all-time greats. Although, what I will say, mate, you know, people lie and numbers don't. I had one contest with Buddy in my entire career. It was an aerial contest. It was a three-season game that Eddie had, and he gave away a free kick to me. So, as far as I'm concerned, Fitzpatrick won, Franklin nil. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. That is so That's good. That's all I need to know. That is awesome. And what a way to end. Look, yeah, we'll go on that. Basically, what I'm saying is I've just pumped Buddy up as being a freak, and basically I'm saying on stats I'm better than him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fitzy, look, man, it has been an awesome chat. You are credit to yourself. It's been awesome to chat, and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of football, and I wish the Western Bulldogs women's team all the best for the 2021 season. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, mate, and allowing me to uh, talk about myself for such a long period of time. No, it's, it's been great to chat, and uh, I, think I really appreciate the interest in the story. Uh, yeah, great great, uh, great to chat, and um, yeah, continue doing great things with what you're doing as well, mate.
And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.